0: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals and the people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting pro-animal laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. I'm joined, as always, by Wayne Pacelli and Marty Irby. Wayne is the founder of Animal Wellness Action. Marty is its executive director and chief lobbyist in D.C. This is a really special show for us. We have author Carl Safina on the program. He is an ecologist and author of books and other writings about the human relationship with the natural world. His latest book is Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. Some of his other titles include Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, Song for the Blue Ocean, Eye of the Albatross, The View from Lazy Point, A Natural Year in an Unnatural World, and many others. He is the founding president of the Safina Center and is inaugural holder of the Carl Safina Endowed Chair for Nature and Humanity at Stony Brook University. Safina hosted the PBS series Saving the Ocean with Carl Safina. In this interview from June 9, 2020, we asked Carl what he means when he talks about animal culture and also what human beings can learn from it. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: The book is about culture, and although it focuses on the culture of non-human animals, the culture of human animals is fundamentally exactly the same thing. Culture is the habits the behaviors and the attractions that you learn socially, that don't come purely from instinct, that you learn socially. And a thing that culture does in other animals, and I I didn't really appreciate how completely true this is for humans until I was well, into writing this book, is that one of the main things that culture does is that it brings individuals into groups, into cultural groups that do things the same way. And at the same time, those groups tend to avoid or be hostile to other groups. So part of the learning is it answers the question of how do we do things here where we live? And what is our identity as a group? But the other thing then becomes, those others in that other group, they are not really like us. And often, not always, there is either the avoidance of another group or the hostility toward another group in those species for which culture is a major part of their life. Now, humans happen to be the most cultural. And we have a lot of ways ma- that many animals that are cultural have one or two ways of signaling what group they belong to. But humans have a lot of different ways to do that. We have uh, team insignias. we have hats, we have re- religious um, symbols. Uh, even languages are a way that we understand whether another individual is in or out of our group. And, you know, to put it mildly, misunderstandings ensue. And that's that's a large part of what we're seeing with what's going on with humans. Now, you know, because we're in the human species, we tend to know a lot about it and see all the nuances. And a lot of times the details kind of cloud our view of what's going on. We're Basically, we're cultural apes and we learn whether some body or some kind of people, are in our group or not in our group. And then we tend to treat well the ones that are in our group and we tend to treat badly the ones that are outside of our group. And all of the language, all of the words, all of the speeches, all of the other actions that follow are a consequence of that very, very basic, very animal thing that we are playing out, um, only half realizing it, I would say.
0: It almost sounds like we're doomed to be racist unless we can come up with a way to culturally realign our thinking. Are you pessimistic about our ability, based on what you've just said, to overcome some of the problems we're confronting today?
1: Well, I would say that it's a natural thing for humans to to be afraid of strangers. That's a natural thing, I would say. But who counts as a stranger is what you're taught. So we could be taught that anybody who is an American is in our group, and anybody who is not an American is a stranger that we fear. But unfortunately, what, what many people are taught, and many people are not taught, by the way, uh, and, you know, and it shows with them when they grow up, they're not doomed to be racist. They're taught who is in our group and who's out of our group and how you treat them. That's, that's cultural. We're taught that. So, you know, as I said, many, many people are, are taught that people of all color are in our group. And other people are taught that people of uh, of different colors or different ethnicities or different religions are outside of our group. So I, I do think that we're doomed to be afraid of people who are not in our group and not regard them well. But who is in our group is a matter of what we teach one another. And And as to whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic, that, I think is um, it's a it's a question that comes up all the time because we're always asking ourselves what we think will happen but i don't think that it's a question that opens any doors to anything i i think just the thing simply is do the right thing and if you want to end the trouble stop doing the things that are causing the trouble
0: and before i go to marty or wayne next i want to follow up with that because when you begin your book and your discussion about sperm whales, you find an identification between humans and sperm whales that we are, among the animal kingdom, the only two who recognize members of a society that they are in versus members of a society that others are in. And I hope I've stated that correctly. Please, me. Well, let please. me,
1: let me um, tweak that. Um, many cultural animals and many and, and many territorial animals—they recognize who is in their group or who's in their territory and who's not supposed to be or who isn't in their group. That they recognize, but here's here's the difference, and here's what you were referring to. In those animals that um, recognize all these other individuals, they. If they live in a group, they have to know all the individuals in a group in order to know who's not in the group. So the chimps basically have to all know each other. Elephants have to all know each other. That's one of the reasons that these creatures that live in social groups have such good memories. Certain kinds of dolphins, same thing. But there are only two species in which If you see a total stranger, you can recognize whether that total stranger is a member of your group or not. And those two species are human beings and sperm whales. So sperm whales have a social organization that involves, they they live in a family. All the families belong to a clan, but there are different clans. All members of the clan recognize each other by code patterns that they emit by using these very loud click patterns they're like morse code that announces what clan they're in and they can meet total strangers and if they have the right code pattern it's like well those total strangers are in our clan we can go over and have a nice time with them we can travel together we can hunt together we can socialize if it's whoa they're not in our clan we avoid them
0: Interesting. So they have like a, the, the password of the day. They know the secret word.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Wayne, Marty, any follow up on this part of the conversation?
1: Well, yeah, I, I
2: wanted to take off on it in a, in, in a little bit of a different direction. Uh, Carl, again, uh, your body of work is breathtaking. And I think of my own experience in terms of my pondering our relationship with animals. I was alert to animal issues when I was a kid. And then when I was in college, it really, you know, started to formulate into more of a coherent pattern of thought and led me into advocacy in this realm. And when I was in college and taking animal behavior and biology, I was always struck by the professors talking about how almost all animal behavior is driven by natural selection principles and, you know, this quest for reproduction and survivorship, that it was almost, you know, that they were. They were machines that were just survival and reproducing machines. they didn't have autonomy, they didn't have you know play they didn't have you know, or or if they did, if they did have play it was it was purely as preparation for killing to survive and you know I've been struck by by your work that you know animals think and they feel and I just wondered, you know, you, you're you just a, a few years older than I am, not many years older. You were caught up in that paradigm. I mean, you broke out of that and became a tremendous innovator in thought in this area. But you must have just slammed frontally into that, that science paradigm that just thought animals were, were automatons in some ways.
1: Well, yes. The short answer is yes. I'm not, well, I, I'm not sure why I'm the kind of person that doesn't just buy it. I mean, I really value thinking about things and trying to make sure that if I'm supposed to believe something I've been taught, I have to understand why I'm believing that. And, um, you know, I've been taught a whole variety of things in a whole variety of subject areas that I decided um, I don't really believe that. But, one of the things with me was that when I was very young, when I was seven years old, I got some homing pigeons because my father had told me that he used to have pigeons when he was a kid, a teenager. Um, that was a very a very popular thing was to have pigeons if you lived in, well, I guess in many of the cities of the United States, I guess, but in New York City and especially Brooklyn and Queens. you know, If you were on the roof and you looked out, you would see numerous flocks of pigeons turning circles in the sky that were very obviously not the wild pigeons they were they were obviously a cohesive flock and they were uh, you could often at a very great distance identify what variety of pigeons that person was raising anyway because my father told me he had pigeons i demanded that i must have pigeons and i must have them now and that was when i was seven years old and when you raise pigeons you have them in a in a coop we had we had a shed that we you know that was the coop, and you 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 stack up boxes for them to breed in. You you go and get some empty fruit crates, apple and peach crates, and you stack them up. And then you put a bowl in there, and you leave a bunch of nesting material in the coop. And the pigeons decide who they're going to marry, and they make their own home in whatever box they choose or or compete for and get. Then um, you know they then have their babies they lay eggs they have chicks Uh, the adults are gone for a good part of the day because you let them out so that they can fly around and get exercise because that's the main enjoyment of having and raising pigeons is watching them fly they're they're a great bridge to a sense of freedom if you're stuck in the city. And then after they're gone for a good part of the day, they they come in, they have supper, they feed their babies and they go to sleep. Right across the yard, we lived in our own stack of crates. It was called an apartment building. And everybody there decided who they were gonna marry and they lived in some apartment that they managed to get or compete for. They made a little home in that apartment. They had babies. They were gone for a good part of the day. They came home, had supper, fed their babies, and went to sleep. So from that time, it just was an obvious fact to me that in the broad strokes, we were the same, just that the details differed. And that was followed by other other creatures that I had. I was sort of obsessed with keeping animals, whether they were, uh, you know, frogs or snakes, or or whether they were hawks and owls. And you, you, you know, some of these animals you work with. And when, when I was a little kid, when, you know, the time I had pigeons, I would spend hours just in the coop, just watching my pigeons, watching them live their lives. And uh, when I trained hawks, you, you train a hawk that becomes a hunting partner with you. You know, there's a lot of two-way going on there. And then you get into a classroom with many people who who have essentially no experience with animals or maybe, maybe just watch wild animals at some distance or catch and tag them and let them go so that they can study their ecology. And they tell you that they, they don't think that everything is Pure instinct, as you said, you know they're like machines or or, or automatons that no impulse uh, that humans feel and no no kind of thought that humans have ever occurs to any other species. Well, that does not comport with what I was seeing and how the creatures I knew well as individuals were reacting to me. But then in the next class, you you go and you learn all about evolution and you learn that the unifying principle of all living things is that all life is organically created in a in a tree of evolution, that everything has ancestors, uh, that we got our nervous system from an ancestral animal that was, you know, basically to, well, the latter part of the story is a fish came on land, and uh, eventually mammals came from those animals that once we're fish in the ocean. I mean, we, we obviously got our nervous system and everything else from some other creatures. So to say that we are all organically related, and obviously we all have the same skeleton, the same organs, the same nervous system, the same hormones, and then suddenly in in this one animal whose impulses look a lot like other animals. I mean, humans have territorial impulses. They want to defend territory. They're... they 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 want to defend their mates. They get lustful. They get hungry. Um, to say that all of this is brand new in our species just makes no sense at all. It's not logically true, and it um, and it doesn't explain anything at all. It's just uh, it it just is something that is uh, clearly wrong.
2: And I think it you know wasn't it in some ways I mean an unconscious sort of thing, but it was to differentiate us from other animals to say. You know, we're the ones who think, we're the ones who have cognitive capacity, they don't, everything's just instinct. And that kind of clears the path for us morally, to do whatever we want to these other creatures, because they're so different, and we deny the continuity of life that you talked about.
1: I think that's 100% true. I think that's why we made up these stories and these views of ourselves. I think it just makes a lot of things easier. More, more It clears the path morally that we can do whatever we want to do. But I, I also want to point out that that seems to be a Western cultural thing. Or maybe you could say, um, maybe, maybe Western, well, I'm, I'm not as familiar with some of the Oriental cultures, but w- Western culture, it's definitely true. Uh, Judeo-Christian, a- Abrahamic tradition, definitely true. Tribal people, though, tribal hunter-gatherers, not true at all. They revered many animals for their superhuman powers, and if they hunted and killed, they gave thanks, they had various rituals to show respect. They feared that if they showed disrespect, the animals would no longer permit themselves to be killed so that humans could survive. In some of the Eastern religions, some of the religions in India, other animals are thought to be part of a karmic wheel of existence, uh, spiritual realm, earthly realm, spiritual realm, earthly realm. And to this day, there are members of the Jain religion who will brush the path ahead of them while. they're walking to try to make sure they never kill a bug of any kind to this day it is believed to be a good thing to do to feed street dogs in india Uh, you know the, the the culture that we live in is not the only human culture it's not the only view of other life on earth it's one of the most broken view probably the most broken view of other life on earth and the consequences of that break are all around us all the time. That's that's why we have an extinction crisis going on. That's why Habitat is being destroyed constantly with no moral outrage by the main institutions that uh, s- supposedly create our sense of values in our culture, which is the religions and, and the um, economics. Those are the two things that tell you the, the value and the worth of, of things. And they are far, far, far from leading voices on behalf of animals, on behalf of uh, the natural living world, on behalf of wild habitats. So we, we're we living in the most broken time between humanity and the rest of the world. Marty? Oh, yeah. I was This is kind of trivial, but Carl, I was just going to add you answered a lifelong question I've had. My grandfather was a veterinarian
2: and uh, the closeness I particularly feel to animals, I believe, comes from him. But when I was a child, I grew up in South Alabama, and he had these two houses that were like 2,000 square foot houses that were kind of old and run down, and they were pigeon houses. And after he passed away, we cleaned them out. And I always wondered why there were these giant trunks and old suitcases and boxes stacked up in those houses. <laughs> and it was his favorite thing to do was, was be with the pigeons. So thank you for that. That was fascinating that I've learned that some 30 years later.
1: Oh, wow, that's great. That's really great.
2: Has pigeon fencing declined, Carl? Is that is it something that we see less of, or we just don't notice it with the proliferation of other no, social it, behaviors? It,
1: it has declined tremendously. The last person I knew who had pigeons, I, I don't know if they still have them or not, because um, we moved away from there, but um, they were saying that their pigeon club is all aging out, that there are no young people coming in. But Believe it or not, this this will sound really surprising, but I I would say until I was about 30 years old, as common as pet food stores are now, places where, you know, if you have dogs and cats, you go to the pet food store, they don't sell live animals, it's not a pet shop, it's just a place that only has pet foods, pet treats, pet bedding, those kinds of things. As common as those are now, that's how common stores were that sold pigeons live pigeons, and all the things that you would need to take care of live pigeons. Uh, they were just storefronts, and they were very common.
0: Fascinating. Yeah, you talk in your, your book about Scala Natura. Uh, and if I'm saying that correctly, I'm certainly referring to the tendency of mankind to view ourselves as the, the pinnacle of creation. Uh, we talk about that, and we talk, too, about how uh, that even if there might be some great comparisons, such as, you know, with the parrots, or the macaws that you discuss in the book also, that if things aren't even appearing to be on the same scale, we, we dismiss those even, even more. That ties around to me, to your reference to Judeo-Christian tradition, and probably what I would have to submit, and submit for your feedback, is, is the most anti-animal, set of words in our culture, and that is have dominion over you know plants and animals. And we tend to weaponize that word dominion.
1: I, I, someone said to me a couple of years ago, any system delivers on its values. I think that those words were written for and interpreted by people who had an idea of how they wanted to conduct themselves with relations to other animals and to nature you know if you said to me something like um i don't know but let's just um let's just have some kind of fantasy imagination type of thing let's let's say that i die and i go to heaven and i find much to my amazement that i'm really welcome there and that they are um they have a very nice place for me but that there i also have a certain amount of free will actually much to my further surprised, And they say, you see this incredible estate here that is a few thousand acres with everything that you love. It's got jungles, it's got a coast with a coral reef right off there. It's got, it's got everything. Everything that I created on earth, I have recreated here just for you. Have dominion over this place. That wouldn't sound to me like kill whatever you want. It would sound to me like, enjoy it, cherish it, take care of it. So we interpret those words the way we feel like interpreting them. I think they could easily have gone the other way.
0: As many Eastern cultures appear to have have done. Uh, Without having those words as a predicate for their beliefs, they seem to have intuitively manifested, nonetheless, in the opposite direction. Uh, Wayne, Marty, before I move on to another part of the book, any final thoughts on this part?
2: I mean... Carl, we're still figuring out, you know, our our human psyche and obviously psychology and so many other human disciplines, you know, examine why we do the things that we do, what our capabilities are, what our talents are. And, you know, I think of all of these species out there and, you know, you've been trying to figure out um, a little bit about about these animals and which ones have really startled you? with their With their thinking or behavior or other aspects
1: of of who they are well, I think maybe three in very different ways Od- oddly enough, this is kind of kind of surprising and counterintuitive i I was not much of a dog person until about ten years ago, and uh, the reason I was not really much of a dog person is that uh, I tended to find dogs generally unpleasant to be around because most of their people, their owners, were so terrible with them. So, so um, unintuitive, you know, often uh, yanking them on their leash or yelling at them all the time. the, The interactions were so unpleasant. And many of the, and many of the dogs were neurotic to various degrees. So I really didn't like being around dogs that much. And then um, and then we got several dogs and they have kind of blown my mind in so many ways about the you know all the ways that everybody knows i mean they they are called man's best friend for a reason they are like the they're they're the people we wish we could be they are fierce and defensive what they love they are tremendously generous with their love they are incredibly forgiving They always want to reconcile and be good again with Mm. their people, their group. And this is not a series of behaviors that, you know, we didn't invent dogs. Dogs are domesticated wolves, and all of those capacities are there in wolves. It's just that wolves show it to other wolves, and, and dogs are as oriented to humans as young wolves are to their parents. I think that's the main difference really between wolves and dogs is that, uh, dogs are like, are like young wolves in arrested development. When wolves become adolescent, they leave their parents and they, they they make their own lives and they take their own stake in the world. Just like human adolescents do a wolf pack. So called pack is actually just a nuclear family, mom and dad and the pups. But the adolescents leave, just like in our nuclear families, which is exactly why dogs fit in our families. They know intuitively from millions of years of being this way, they know what a a nuclear family is about and they know what mom and dad is about. But they never, a dog never asserts its need to leave and strike out on its own and and devise its own life. A wolf does do that. So a dog is, in my mind, is a wolf in arrested development that way. But I just I, our dogs, I, I they're just about the best thing in our our lives. They make us smile the most. They're constantly interesting to see the different individual behaviors, uh, little quirks about who cares for who, how they how they express that kind of care, uh, and fun st- a lot of fun stuff also but very, very touching, very moving, extremely interesting. So that's one, I said three. Killer whales that m- many people now like to call orcas instead of killer whales, uh, they are also mind boggling. The apparent intelligence that they show and the apparent ability to communicate some very complicated things to one another in a way that we totally do not understand is kind of off the scale i mean it it makes you you know gives you this sort of woo-woo feeling like they're reading each other's minds which who knows maybe they can do that or maybe they are, maybe they have a mode of communication that we simply have not detected yet. Like we didn't know that um, sperm whales and and dolphins have sonar until about 1960. We just didn't know they had that capacity. Maybe there's a communication mode that we haven't detected yet, but they can do some really unbelievable things. And the way that they interact with people is amazing. And I'll just give you uh, three little examples of that. One A very small killer uh, orca was separated from its family, somehow got completely lost. It's a very, very rare thing to happen. And a researcher who has been studying them now for about 40 years was the first person on the scene after somebody said there seems to be a lost baby orca. So he gets with the baby and they're they're figuring out how they're gonna basically round it up and bring it back to its family because they know exactly where it's supposed to be. And while he's waiting, it starts kind of interacting with him. Now this is a totally totally wild animal, no previous experience with human beings, but it it recognizes that he can think and feel, something that humans have a hard time recognizing in other species. So so it starts playing with him. He he picks up a floating piece of wood, he throws it, it goes and retrieves it. Then he gets this crazy idea that with his index finger, he's gonna make a rolling motion and the baby orphan orca Rolls over in the water. Something that, if you try that with a dog, you, you know that you need a lot of treats and a, a few days of training before they get that. But it got that immediately. Another one that was separated very far up a fjord, com, com, totally cut off from hearing its family, and lived there for several years in British Columbia, would also play with people, but it made the following distinction it somehow knew that it might be able to hurt people and it didn't want to hurt them. And it somehow seemed to know that it's not good for a human being to be in the water in British Columbia because it's very cold water. So if it was playing with some kayakers, it would very, very gently nudge the kayak and fool around with the people. If it was playing with people in a sailboat, it would give the boat a big shove. It seemed to know the difference between um, what amount of force it could safely exert with this totally other species it was playing with. The last example with orcas is that during the time when people were basically rounding up the families and taking their babies for the aquariums that have trained orcas, and this was mostly in the 1970s. A lot of those families had been rounded up several times. Uh, when when the you know the boats came and the chases started, they knew what was coming after a while. And in one case that was described by one of the people who was involved in it, the males went off in one direction very obviously, while the females and the babies, the babies were the targets of the catchers, they stayed underwater for a very unusually long amount of time in a totally different direction that the males were decoying the catcher boats away from the rest of their family. Now unfortunately they have to come to the surface to breathe at some point and the catchers eventually figured out what was going on and where those babies that they wanted to kidnap were. But that shows you that they had some way of devising a totally new strategy to try to thwart this terrible thing that was beset upon them. So, Okay, so that's dogs and that's orcas. And then I think uh, finally, as far as being really startled, when I was writing Beyond Words and I spent several weeks among elephants in East Africa with Cynthia Moss and with Ian Douglas Hamilton's researchers. I prepped for going there by reading a a brand new 700 page academic summarization of 40 years of research. So I arrived knowing what was pretty up to date scientifically, but just watching the elephants be with each other be with their babies be with their families and getting pretty much a running commentary from people who knew some of those individual elephants for literally 40 years i just fell in love with them and i don't mean that in a superficial way i mean that in a really deep way they were astonishing and and they live very peaceful lives they you know all they eat is vegetation they they don't look for trouble, they don't make trouble. They uh, basically just want to be with their families and raise their babies and not hurt anybody and not be hurt. Honestly, they started to seem, in the way that they live, they, it seemed you know better than how we live. It just seemed like they have all the good stuff and they don't have to worry about the bad stuff. But then the bad stuff comes looking for them on two legs. And I was there when there was a tremendous spike in the amount of elephants that were being killed for their tusks. Every elephant that dies, dies with a pair of tusks, but we can't, we can't seem to just wait for them to die. Uh, just because we like to carve these two teeth they have, we will blow them away and create all these traumatized orphans some of whom just starved to death in the bush. I mean, I saw these tattered little bands of young elephants trying to form some kind of families without any experienced leaders after watching their family members shot to death. I I saw an elephant that had been shot uh, just an hour or two before we got there with its face hacked off and blood still coming out of a bullet hole in, in the back of its head. It, it was a, just a whiplash of emotions about how how wonderful they are and and what we are incapable of doing, which is just being kind. You know, be just the, our capacity for such ruthless, thoughtless, unfeeling savagery. It seemed to me like these were, in a way. They were just like poor people trying to mine their own business and then getting brutalized by people who had guns and what are and it's we, not yeah. you know what are we seeing in our country this week poor people trying to mine their own business being brutalized with people with guns
2: well no i, I i'm sorry to interrupt that that really important closing point. Uh, and and that, that, that's quite an observation. Taking it back, though, the elephants, you know, it's not just the poaching that is a form of savagery. It's our normal system of wildlife management that looks at these animals just as populations. I mean, what does it do to, to kill a, a family member, to take out an adult female or an adult male from a community group or a family group? The same thing is true for wolves that one of these poor wolves is trapped or shot from a pack. What about the grieving that occurs? You know, you're not just talking about the suffering of the animal who was killed with a, with a bullet. It's,
1: it's, it's the effect
2: psychologically.
1: Right. Often I think the survivors suffer more uh, because they suffer longer, but, Oddly enough, in, in a weird twist on compassion, the people who think that, you know, we're pushing elephants into smaller and smaller remaining remnants of suitable habitat. Even the first time I went to Africa when I was in my 20s, there was vastly more elephant habitat. If you look on a map of, of where elephants were in the 1980s and now, they're, they're, the places where they can live has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And so when these managers decide that there are too many elephants in a place, in a very weird twist on compassion, because of what you're talking about, they kill entire families all at once so that there are not traumatized survivors. In this country with the wolves, it's weirdly worse. Uh, When I was writing about and thinking about the wolves uh, in, in my book, Beyond Words, which came out four or five years ago. You know, I wasn't thinking of the, the the current racial problems that are erupting all over the place now. But it occurred to me that people in the West that hate wolves, they hate wolves with a bias that feels racial. It's it's completely irrational. They relish the idea of wolves suffering. You know, it's not just that they don't want wolves. It's that many of them from from what they write and uh, and what they say and how they act and, and what they are making the governments, their state governments. And now just just today, I just read that Trump, I, I, I can't believe every several times a week, I cannot believe this is even legally possible to do. But he has now made uh, he's lifted some restrictions that prevented people in Alaska from going and killing wolf pups in their den in national parks. We are now going to be killing wolf pups in national parks, and you know why? Why are we doing that in a national park? They're supposed to live there. I mean, if they're not allowed to live anywhere else, at least we're supposed to have national parks. But well, well, as I said, well, Carl, I,
2: I I I worked on that rulemaking for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to stop baiting and killing yeah, animals in the dens on national on. On wildlife refuges, and and it's unimaginable. But I think this is just taking off on your thought about these attitudes toward predators, and you you describe it as a as a kind of racism. But you know, I, I think there's this hardwiring that we humans have these atavistic fears of predators. You know, they're completely disproportionate. I mean, these animals are small in number; they're trapped in little enclaves; they're they're almost no threat to us yet. We can't even stomach the idea of a few of the survivors living right. in a park or, right. a, or a refuge. Right. And, and it is truly one of the most irrational things about us. And we, we humans have the ability to overcome these things, right? I mean, through education and through understanding and through the science and other work that you've done, we can recognize that these are incredible animals made to demonize wolves who are the forebears of the domesticated dogs who live in our homes and who sleep in our beds. To me, the whole thing is just an astonishing contradiction in human behavior. It, and uh, that's, a,
1: that's a perfect, perfect way of putting it. But the only thing that you said that, that I would comment further on is you said it's, it's like almost like a hard wiring, but there again. Not so, because the Native Americans revered wolves. They thought that the wolves were the brothers uh, and sisters of humanity. Not only did they revere them and have a special place in their culture for honoring wolves, but more recently, you know, in very recent times, uh, Native American groups have sued to prevent open seasons on wolves in states where they live. I mean, even within the United States in very recent times, there is a tension between people who hate wolves, who are basically, you know, out of the European tradition, and the Native Americans who love wolves. They never saw a wolf they had a problem with. Uh, they revere wolves for all of the intellect and emotion that they were able to observe, because, you know, as Native tribal people, they they knew wolves well. They They knew them for real, not out of fairy tales and, uh, and these monstrous conflations that the, the European mind somehow arrived at about wolves and wolves and the devil and all of these bizarre kinds of uh, misconceptions. But all the misconceptions are taught. That's education also. Unfortunately, it's such a damaging kind of hurtful, inhuman, unempathetic Education, where easily the very opposite could be taught,
0: there is so much in your your book to discuss, Carl, so I want to touch on a couple of quick things or touch on some deep things very quickly. Um, one thing that has appalled me having been a parent and having watched a lot of parenting trends is the tendency to treat our human babies in ways that animals don 't treat their babies, and specifically what I have in mind is the admonition that we quickly put our newborns in separate rooms that we let them cry themselves to sleep have we wandered terribly far from what we should learn from our animal friends when it comes to taking care of our infants
1: wow well that's uh you know that's probably another show with another set of experts um but as a as an ecologist and an animal behavior professional, I, I can tell you that I think that our culture's treatment of babies is simply bizarre. Luckily, we're getting away from the idea that real milk is no good for them and you have to feed them fake milk. I mean, the, the only things that we feed fe- fake milk to is baby squirrels and baby raccoons that somehow find their way to our doorstep because somebody has found some starving orphan someplace. So we, you know, we reach for the formula. You, you don't feed baby mammals fake milk their mothers make it i mean that's what mammals are and to take them away and put them in a separate room and let them why are they crying they're crying because they're they have separation anxiety it's it's nuts it's just weird
0: all right enough enough said on that and because marty is single uh and marty comes to me oftentimes for dating advice Uh, you talk, which I'm happy, happy to give. Um, You know, there's this whole notion of females being the choosers and beauty. And of course, this could in and of itself be a completely different show. What can we learn about what it means to be beautiful to the other gender from what we see in our animal friends?
1: Well, in some, in some species, females do the choosing. This is especially true in many birds. And that's why you see a tremendous disparity between bird species in which the male is very colorful and the female is totally camouflaged. But in other species, like the macaws that I write about in the book, both sexes are equally spectacular looking. And that indicates that both sexes are doing the choosing and they're doing the choosing based largely on looks. Well, guess who else does that? human beings we do the choosing largely on looks at first i mean you any kind of dating service or dating profile or anything like that photographs are really important first impressions are usually visual and uh, and then a lot happens from there as to whether it's going to move to a, another step or not but humans are are one of those species in which both sexes are doing the choosing but the criteria it seems to be different with us it looks like females are choosing males based on different kinds of criteria than males are choosing females in our species one thing that's always struck me as odd and interesting from a behavioral point of view is that you know and especially as a male in our culture males in our culture don't basically don't use any makeup right and day to day or in normal business interactions or in our families we don't males usually don't put makeup on but females do and, you know, what counts as good is a cultural thing. I, I've been trying to find analogies to the way women use makeup and the markings in other animals. Um, af- after sort of coming through this little breakthrough with myself that many of the markings in, in other animals are arbitrary. And if they're totally arbitrary, there's a good chance that they're chosen to, as far as who gets to mate and who gets to breed, that they're chosen based on looks. One thing that has always kind of been a little confusing to me is darkening the area around the human eye using eye shadow or eyeliner, because um, logically that should not look healthy. It should look like you've got a black eye or, or there's something wrong with your skin or something like that. But it's to sort of you know, make the whites of their eyes pop because we're, we look each other in the eye a lot, right? And a lot of, um, we do a lot of gesturing with our eyes. We do a lot of flirting with our eye gestures. Well, if you look at the big cats, just for instance, so you start looking at a lot of animals, you basically see eyeliner. You, you see either a dark lining right around the eye or a, or a white lining, something that sets off the eye itself so very very interesting I think and I, I think you know there's a lot more to think about and a lot more to try to look deeply into about the idea of how beauty and the selection of beauty is so very important in deciding who gets to who gets the opportunity to breed with whom yeah fascinating or to breed at that all really matter.
2: explains um
1: why uh, Joe Exotic wore so much eyeliner in the series Tiger King I'm happy to say I didn't see any of that so <laughs> but I, I heard too much about it.
0: Uh, Wayne, Marty, any final questions before our, I ask our guest for final thoughts from him?
2: I, I wanted to ask, Carl, obviously, you know, science has had its periods in human history. And, you know, we look back and, you know, we're astonished by the innovators and, and the people who, who really pushed forward our thinking with their, with their insights. But there were so many gaps and of course, now, as we look at our present understanding of animals and uh, and other phenomenon in society, what are the gaps that people fifty and one hundred years forward are going to look back on our age? do you you had hinted about communications, that perhaps there's telepathy between orcas or uh, have you thought about you know what where we're going to see some some major new awakening in our understanding? Of animals from a scientific perspective
1: well i wrote a, i wrote a book about culture you know that's the book we're talking about because i do think that that's a very very overlooked major uh, part of the lives of many other animals and this is not just uh, intellectual curiosity kind of a thing it has very practical implications because animals need to learn how they live where they live and for the species that are cultural, they learn that from elders. Mostly they learn that from their mothers. If they don't grow up in a place learning how to live here, they won't know how to live there. And the consequences for conservation, uh, to let these species simply to continue to exist, or to be able to reintroduce them where they've been wiped out, which is crucial, Uh, and has worked well for many species that would have been completely gone if a a small population wasn't bred somehow or moved uh, somewhere to repopulate and, and reestablish part of the range that had been lost. But if it's an animal that has some kind of culture, you cannot just move an animal and open the door. That's like abandoning a dog on the side of the road. They don't know who they are. They don't know who they're with. They don't know where they are, They don't know what they do there. So um, even for animals like elk and bighorn sheep in the United States, thick-billed parrots in the United States, reintroductions have failed because you you bring elk or bighorns to a place where it's great summer pasture, but the winter, it's 7,000 feet. The, The winter is brutal. They can't be there in the winter. They don't know where they're supposed to go. But if they had been there naturally with a, with a normal population with elders, they would just follow them down to the lowlands to their winter range. And some of these introductions have had extremely high mortality as, as animals simply uh, basically froze and starved to death. The thick billed parrot reintroduction attempt, They just brought birds that had been captive. They bred some for reintroduction and they just opened the cages. They all died. They had no idea where any food was. They didn't know what wild food was. How could they have expected them to do so? There has to be a lot you don't understand in order to think that that's a way of reintroducing a population somewhere. So I think understanding that culture is a major part of how animals know what they're supposed to do to survive is something that I, I hope will become recognized as a totally overlooked part of biological diversity and will be incorporated in all of our thinking about conservation. And, and also, what do you lose when you lose a whole population? You lose everything that it has taken that population thousands of years to learn about living in that mm. part of the range. So there's really mm. practical implications there. And the other thing is that other species have uh, individuality. We we call it personality in humans. Um, they are somebody because they have relationships as individuals to other individuals in their social groups. For many species, not all, but for many species, and appreciating individuality, I I think is another frontier in how we think about free living animals, wild animals, you know, we appreciate individuality and basically the one species that in the United States, many people have the opportunity to live with and observe at close quarters, basically dogs, cats to a somewhat lesser extent. But other than that, virtually all species are total strangers to people. And what do we have to draw from to learn these things? We have to draw from our human capacity for empathy and for sympathy and compassion. I think the best thing about humans is our capacity for compassion. The worst thing about humans is that the flip side of understanding how you can make things better for somebody is understanding that you can make somebody suffer and wanting to do that. That's cruelty. We have a capacity for cruelty also. If we really want to be human beings, we should play to the best thing about us, which is our capacity for compassion, and show that compassion to every living thing around us, other species and other people as well.
0: Does your research make it harder for you to love humanity?
1: I was having a tough time before I was a professional. So um, I don't know if it's making it harder or not. But humanity is a tough sell to me these days. I find to be To give you a a straight answer and and get back to being the serious person everybody thinks I am, because I'm serious a lot of the time, I, I find the disparity between how great humans are capable of being with our intellect, with our technological ability combined with compassion that we we do all of those things to a greater extent than any other species. The disparity between what we're capable of doing and what we actually do is exceptionally disappointing to me. I'm just so disappointed in my species. Other animals, they are exactly the the best and the most they can be, and, and we're not.
0: Uh, we've been talking with Carl Safina. His new book is Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. If you're staying at home still because of the virus or just not wanting to get out into the crowds right now, it is as informative as it is beautifully written. Uh, Carl, you have a, a great mind, not only for data, for synthesizing it, but for expressing it in just easy easy prose that is as vivid as it is conductive of information. So I really, really treasured my time reading this book. So thank you very much. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I'm your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.